What London Can Be is brought to you by London Community Foundation, an organization dedicated to improving communities across London and Middlesex County. Welcome to What London Can Be, the podcast where we navigate our shifting world, shine a light on the issues our city is facing, and explore the innovative Made in London solutions to critical challenges in our community. Hi, I'm Diane Silva, Director of Philanthropy at London Community Foundation. Today I'll be speaking with Ariel Kayabaga, Ward 13 Councillor for the City of London. The first Black woman ever elected to London City Council, Ariel serves on many boards, committees throughout the city, and has been a tireless and dedicated representative of the marginalized voices in our community since her term began in 2018. Her advocacy and leadership in our community are inspiring, and I'm so happy to have Ariel here today with us. Hi, Ariel. How are you? Good morning. I'm very good. Um, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. Of course. And, you know, it's so sad because I see you everywhere, although we haven't met like really close face to face. So and here we are with a barrier again. (laughs) We we were meeting virtually, but I'm so honored to be speaking with you. I'm honored to be on this podcast as well. So Mm -hmm. thanks for bringing in my voice. Awesome. And before we even get into the interview, I'm just curious because, you know, you you are a city councillor. You're you're also a, a single mom. How are you doing, you know, handling all these initiatives in the city and um, living through this pandemic? And I'm sure your son is uh, at home being schooled, right, virtually. So yes. how are you managing all of this? I, that's like the no-go question. You don't ask how people are doing right now. <laughs> I understand. I think you ask them, are you staying afloat? <laughs> yeah. We're staying safe. We're, we're, um, we're blessed. Yeah. So there's really not much to complain about. But I think that the COVID mm-hmm. fatigue and, and the COVID burnout is real. And um, mm-hmm. I can start to see it in my son, who is currently doing virtual school. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, we're doing the best we can. We're making uh, uh, lemonade out of lemons. Good for you. I know. I know. I understand. And I'm sure there's tons of families out there, too, dealing with the same things and, and different scenarios. But thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And uh, how are you doing? Oh, <laughs> you know, I don't have little kids anymore in the home. So I'm, I am lucky because <laughs> I'm, we're empty nesters, my husband and I. But, um, you know, it does have its challenges. I'm such a people person. And I feel this virtual life that I'm living is so isolating and yeah. so many times and I, I thrive off of the people connection. So right. I'll be honest, I do struggle mentally with this at times, mm-hmm. but I'm trying my best to and 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 gracious and grateful for the life that we have. And and I know that there's worse situations out there and I do recognize that. So absolutely. But your yeah. situation matters, too. So thanks everybody for that. does. Oh, thanks for asking. And for those listeners that are here um, and who don't know who you are, do you mind sharing a little bit about yourself? Like, where did you grow up and what drew you into politics? Yeah. Um, so um, many people know my name, but mm-hmm. actually just at the beginning, we we're talking about my name. And um, I just want to share a fun fact. Um, my it. name is Ariel, but um, I actually learned how to say Ariel a few years uh, when I was when we first came to Canada, because I remember I met this little girl who was also my age and who was an Anglophone. And, and I told her my name the way I 
was I've always said my name, which was Ariel. Uh, my mom named me Ariel when I was a little girl, and um, she was like, oh, "Okay, don't say it like that," um, because a lot of people won't know how to say your name. So she taught me how to say Ariel, and from that moment, I've been Ariel. <laughs> so uh, it's 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 really interesting to me when people say, "How do I properly say your name?" I'm like, "You can't." So I'm just gonna tell you how you say it in English. So, but um, anyways, that I thought that was really cool that we were just talking about that. It reminded me that. Um, uh, the way that language and culture can shift in your life. Um, so I was born in Burundi. Um, I grew up in Canada, here in London, Ontario. I went to school at Carleton University. I'm a single mom of a beautiful son named Noah. Uh, and I was recently elected on city council in 2018 as the first black woman to be, uh, to take a seat on council, uh, which is an honor, um, which is also a burden <laughs> at the same time. So it's like a double-edged sword. Uh, sword. Um, and um, yeah, I, I've been a Londoner for a big portion of my life. I'm a francophone. Uh, I'm a mom. I'm a sister. Um, I'm a friend. I am a lot of things. I'm a daughter. <laughs> um, I don't necessarily always um, introduce myself with my titles. Uh, I try to uh, really go deeper into who I am and, and the, the different things that that make me. And that's being a sister, a friend, a cousin, um, yeah, all those beautiful things. So, but um, for many Londoners, I am their city councillor. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying about, you know, when we were talking about your name. And it's funny, I never knew about the francophone side of you and Ariel, like that's gorgeous. And um, yeah, and I'm glad you did correct me um, because I was saying Ariel, like your typical- Like the little mermaid. Right? And I'm so glad you did correct me because it does, it does matter. Like I, you know, I have a very typical white name, Diane, right? But uh-huh. my sister is, uh, her name is La Salette in Portuguese. Uh-huh. And uh, and she struggles with the name. So people just call her Sally. And I'm thinking, well, it's too bad because that's your identity, La Salette, yeah. right? So I, I completely get that. And most people, you know, who are Anglophone, they told me my name was Ariel. Um, but it was this um, little girl that I met in the YMCA when we were first refugees in Canada who was like, no, your name is not. Ariel because your name is Ariel so therefore it has to be Ariel it's better anyways and I was like I agree because I couldn't really connect with the Ariel part and she said well Ariel is just one L and then yours is double L E so we're gonna go with Ariel so she taught me my, my name in, in 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 English and so we've run with it beautiful love it Okay. And in what ways has your life experiences shaped you? You know, I um, being a newcomer and then spending majority of your life here in Canada and being a black woman and a single mom, how has this shaped you as a person and even as a politician? It's a very interesting question because I feel like I don't even know the depth of that question, how to answer that um, and do it justice because um, I think I was having a conversation with a friend of mine uh, recently about how when we came to Canada as refugees, we became adults at our, at a very young age um, because our parents needed help. Our parents needed support. Um, 
we so I think in a way it shaped me as this person who's a caregiver to a lot of people um, who wants to make sure everybody's safe, everybody's um, you know um, not being treated by the system, getting equal access to things. These are things that I was doing as a little girl uh, when we first came to Canada. I had to help my mom uh, many times pick up the phone or understand what they were saying, or we were very much fully aware of the impact and, and, and what kind of, you know, situation we're living in and how we had to get through it as a family and not just, um, a, a one person. Um, but we were just kids, right? <laughs> we we're just kids and we had to grow up really quickly. Um, I didn't have the same upbringing as, um, a lot of Canadians because we had to, focus on making it and making sure that our family as a unit remains afloat. So um, it gives me uh, a sense of shared responsibilities, um, which kind of shows up in the work that I do. Uh, we work as a unit. We have uh, responsibilities to take care of one another, uh, which means I'm going to be paying attention to the people who are being left behind. And the system to me and its unfairness stands out to me all the time just because that's how I grew up. Uh, I grew up seeing the cracks in the system. So even if um, I'm no longer experiencing a lot of the things that I experience um, as a younger um, newcomer to this country, um, the experience is so, um, I remember it so well that um, I know now how it affected me. Uh, I realized that I was an adult, actually, how it affected me as a child and, and the kinds of thoughts and feelings that uh, I remember from that. And it pushes me to want to make a better place for other people so that they don't have to experience these these some of these precarious situations that my family and I experienced. So um, I think that shapes me as a politician as well, who um, is very community-based, um, is also a caregiver because I'm a mom and I, I I come from a culture of caregivers. Uh, I was raised by women, a lot of strong women around me. Um, so that I think that translates in the work that I do as well. You know, in hearing you share that experience, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts around Black Lives Matter movement. You know, this movement really took off last year in response to the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And it's easy for us Canadians to think anti-Black racism isn't an issue here like it is in the U.S., um, I'm curious to see what you were thinking as this was all playing out and how you think this narrative is wrong or might be wrong. Yeah, no, I find that interesting. Um, for a lot of people, uh, Black Lives Matter took off last year. Um, for Black people, Black Lives Matter has been a growing movement for over the course of a decade. Um, there are a lot of people and very high profile um, cases of poli uh, police brutality in the Black community. Um, there was a 12 year old who was killed um, um, in 2014, uh, Tamir Rice, uh, there was the killing of Eric Harris, uh, the killings of Walter Scott, William Chapman, Jeremy uh, McDowell, Jamar Clark, uh, Alton Sterling, Terrence, uh, Philando Castile. That one really marked me. Uh, I remember uh, being at work uh, and having to leave and, and taking off a few days because it just felt like it's unbelievable that every week we're experiencing um, police brutality against Black lives and it wasn't taken off the way it took off in last year. And then last year, I don't know what happened. I can't explain it. I don't have uh, the insight to tell you what it is that 
must have transpired in people's hearts and minds to finally say enough is enough. Um, but we have been saying enough is enough for a very, very long time. Um, here in Canada, um, in Ottawa, actually, um, parallel to Philando Castile, who was murdered in 2016, there was a Somali man who was also murdered by the police um, in 2016. And to this day, very, like very few people know that information. And that was happening at the same time that that same uh, wreckage was happening. But a few uh, weeks before prior, or I would say maybe a week or two prior to Philando Castile's murder, um, there was also the shooting, uh, the Orlando shooting. So most people remember that year for the Orlando shooting, but not for Philando Castile, who's a man who was a community um, servant. He he worked in, I think he worked in the housing department, um, was murdered by the police in broad daylight next to his um, girlfriend and their baby in the backseat of the car. So these very traumatizing um, moments are not remembered um, by many people, but they happened. And for many people, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement made sense to them in 2020. Uh, prior to 2020, whenever anyone said that Black Lives Mattered, it would turn into a terrorist uh, conversation, um, they were classified. Uh, we were classified as terrorists. Uh, it was. It was actually in a place where we were. Some people were even afraid to make their stance on Black Lives Mattering. Um, however, I do believe that there is um, a lot of political um, involvement to recognizing the movement. Uh, a lot more. Uh, People of color, black and indigenous people have been elected over the last few years and um, having them make a stance on where they stand with the Black Lives Matter also supported the 2020 uh, racial reckoning that we saw. So I just want to clarify that Black Lives Matter has been work that has been led by black women, uh, queer people um, for and trans people for a very long time. And just last year, people started paying attention to it. I think Canadians also started paying attention to the racism that prevails in our country. The difference between um, Canada and the United States is that uh, is, is it's a lot quieter here, the racism that happens here, because we're not as connected um, and there's less, less Black people in this country than there is in the United States. Um, so and, and also, we don't collect a lot of race-based data here in Canada to, to, to actually see uh, what racism looks like in this country. But at the end of the day, the foundation of our countries is the same. Um, we, how we got here, how we got to where we are today, the systems that we operate in, um, we're, we're the same. We're just dealing with the racism uh, very differently. And the ways that we want to report on the racism is also very different. How many times have we, have we actually checked on, uh, have we ever collected um, data on who's, who's mostly represented in the jails? Have we collected data on how the healthcare system deals with Black and Indigenous people? Have we collected data in schools? Have we collected, we haven't collected any data. So we rely on the United States data. And that's why the USA remains a focus in this conversation. But we have our own share of work to do. Um, and I just want us to know that, that we don't, we, we're not better off um, just because we are not seeing uh, every week a Black person being murdered on TV. We are seeing uh, Indigenous people being murdered on TV every day, and we don't get the same outrage. But I think um, 
last year was uh, a very marking moment for intolerance of, of racism. We're now intolerant to it. And I think it empowered a lot of communities of color and, and uh, indigenous and black people to stand up and, and to speak up for themselves and to continue to advocate and not fear this rhetoric that's been lingering for years about the movement of asking to live uh, being a terrorist movement. So now we, uh, and, and just, I know I'm, I'm taking, I'm, I'm talking on too long, but. No, I love this. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Canada uh, just recently declared the Proud Boys to be a terrorist organization. So that really changes the, the picture of the experience of Black and Indigenous people in this country and in, in the United States, because it just a couple of years ago, it was the other way around, where if you protested asking for your basic rights, which is to live, you were deemed to be a terrorist. So that's that changes a little bit the conversation. And I look forward to seeing um, what more we can do. But we can't move forward if we don't want to move forward. That's true. You know, I am so glad you reminded everyone by naming all those names of the people that have been, you know, dealt an unjust hand by, you know, the police or society. Um, as you were rhyming off those names, I just felt um, the sense of tension coming over me and sadness. Um, thank you for reminding us about that in the journey of Black Lives Matter, because it has been around for a long time. And you're right. For some re reason, 2020 was the turning point. And, you know, we can all say probably it was because of the pandemic. People were stuck at home. And so it was more raw seeing those images. Maybe. I don't know. I'm not an expert at this. I know I personally n hated seeing the violence being done, unnecessary violence and treatment of Black and Indigenous people over the years on TV. But uh, you're right. Now it's getting the attention. But you know what? It deserves it. And um, I know that this is such a heavy, heavy emotional topic. Um, but why don't we switch over now to the positive changes or stories that you've seen, even specifically here in London, as a result of this surge against anti-Black racism? Mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, um, there is a conversation around Black people feeling um, empowered to step up and, 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 and request and demand for you know, their rights to be, uh, their basic rights, you know, because it's basic human rights that we're asking for. Um, I have seen, for, and we had the protests, right, that generated 10,000 people, which shows um, support. Um, I have seen a lot more uh, collaborations between uh, different communities uh, here in London. Um, there has been, you know, uh, the desire of wanting to do something from many sectors, from the business community, from the political level, from uh, different organizations and uh, Black and Indigenous voices have been um the door is open for us to basically um, speak our truth. The problem um, sometimes is that we are trying to do it in a system that uh, is going to not work out <laughs> because the system was not created for us. So I think um, what we are having conversations about now is what does the future look like and how do we um, reclaim our voices and, and, and empower one another to have equal um, seats at the table. But it's also a weird conversation because 
for so long, everybody just wanted a seat at the table. But now it's like, do we even want to be at the table? Because the table is not shaped um, to have room for us, right? Like, are we going to just squish over and make room for the table? Or do we actually just all step away from the table altogether collectively and find a new table that we can all sit on? A table that is um, informed by the community, a table that has um, the heart of the community uh, in mind. So um, those are conversations that are being had in many different rooms, many different sectors. And I think that's 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 a positive thing. That's a positive thing that we are willing to take that step forward. I've seen allyship from different people who and different organizations that have um, not only, you know, reached out to indigenous and black communities but also willing to do the work um yeah there was a momentum there was a momentum there was um this empowerment there are conversations being had in school systems there are uh, policies being implemented here and there uh and it's not everything that people need to to have to to meet their basic needs and their basic uh, human rights, but it's a beginning. And I am a mom. So as a mom, we celebrate little wins all the time because um, hard work uh, and the work that we're trying to do is hard work and it takes a long time and, and, and it takes a lot of efforts to get there. So I take my time and celebrate little wins, such as having allyship um, working with people who are listening and are willing to do the changes. And yeah, sometimes I'm tired that I have to repeat myself and that we are still talking about educating, but education and, and understanding is still important and it's still something that people should continue to do. So um, I look forward to a time where we're going to have these discussions in, in, in education rooms and school rooms with smaller children um, so that we can impact from a grassroots level um, so that we can ensure a better um, a better outcome in generations to come. But yeah, I have seen a lot of changes. We have even been able to implement some policies such as um, anti-racism lens on our budget because if you're going to really tackle, um, uh, you know, the, the systemic um, racism that, that Black and Indigenous people have experienced over the years, you really have to look at the way that the money, where the money has been going. And it is sometimes you got to put your money where your mouth is. And so we, we did that at the City of London, but we still have so much work to do um, that it, sometimes it's a little uncomfortable to to celebrate all the stuff that's happening, knowing all the work that's left to do. Um, but I have seen I have seen the dial move. Okay, so now you really piqued my curiosity because, <laughs> um, and I have like kind of like a two part question here. Uh-huh. So I am seeing personally um, a, a lot of. Uh, companies, businesses in the private sector and in the public sector um, trying to initiate inif- initiatives to learn and uh, and do work in these areas, learn some more about, you know, Black Lives Matter movement and Indigenous uh, equality for, for everyone. And do you have any advice for uh, business owners or leaders and how best to approach this from a workplace even standpoint. Just curious if you have any advice or if you have advice for advocates who want their voices heard but are encountering resistance or being silenced in any way. 
I, I'm in no means here given expert advice. I'm given my yeah. personal opinion. Yes. Um, I do believe that uh, there has been a lot of listening and a lot of educating happening. Uh, there's a lot of resources that people can find to understand um, systemic racism and anti-Black and, and anti-Indigenous racism. Um, I don't think the people should spend a lot of time learning about the Black Lives Matter movement uh, per se. I think people should spend a lot of time um, figuring out and undoing uh, systemic racism, uh, racism, how it shows up in the workplaces and and, and the, at the roots and at the core of it. Um, and a lot of times that just means um, to open up and hire Black and Indigenous people um, to work with Black and Indigenous communities and to to have an informed opinion on how to move forward, um, bring in experts from those communities and have those discussions. Um, I know a lot of businesses have, have really uh, reached out uh, and have really wanted to know how to do that. And my advice is always, I think you need to hire an expert who actually specializes in... Um, workplace best practices on how to be anti-oppressive and anti-racist. Uh, so I I would suggest that as well, like something that uh, it would be very helpful. And then being also willing to, to understand our biases um, and where we learn those biases and how we can learn to let them go. There's a lot of contributing factors into the way, the, the structures that we have today. And in terms of the advocates who are meeting uh, a blocked wall, I think um, I think continuing the advocacy is important. I know sometimes it may feel like it's redundant to keep saying the same thing, but um, some days we get breakthroughs like we did last year. Um, another thing, too, that I wanted to mention uh, from your last question that I feel like I forgot to mention is the... The impact of of the empowerment that we're seeing in younger um, Black youth and, and Black children, um, last year was very traumatic for our children. I remember having very difficult discussions with my son about what it meant to be Black and what he was seeing unfold on TV. And a lot of tears were shed in those conversations. And a lot of questions that I couldn't answer were asked Um so it's important that people understand that racism is not part of our history, but it is part of this country's history. And we don't wake up looking for racism, but racism wakes up looking for us every day. So how do you have these discussions with your children, with your families, with your workspaces, so that we reduce the impact that racism has on our children, on us? I think I was um, invited to a health conference the other day and they were talking about the health impacts of, of racism. And that is something that many people don't talk about. Perhaps if we had those more of those conversations, people can finally understand the level of impact that racism has on people. So, and the fact that we still have to even ask people to continue to do advocacy is, is, is sad, but that's where we are now. We have to push. We can't get tired now because our children are watching and they're feeling empowered that they have a voice and that they can live in, in, in countries where they can speak up. Um, and we have to continue to, to, to support that. I've also seen a surge of uh, younger people who are of color, whether indigenous or black um, 
decide to to go into policy, policy uh, run for politics, and be at the tables where policies are being discussed and where budgets are being discussed as well. So that's a really important part of changing the structure of of, of what the system has been on on Black people because a lot of the experiences of racism in the system were made in the political realm. So we have to try and work, tackle it at every sector, at every front. But at the end of the day, it comes down to policy and money. So in your opinion, like, are there, are there any initiatives or projects that are currently standing out that's working towards anti, anti-racism here in London that, you know, really stand out in your opinion? What do you think is happening there in that space? Or not? That's a good question. Uh, I hadn't thought about that one too much. Uh, I, I think at a city level, what we're doing in terms of um, uh, opening up the doors and, and including Black and Indigenous voices at a higher level, um, I, I'm not. I'm not sure if you're aware that we will be hiring um, anti-oppression and and a director of anti-oppression and anti-racism uh, at the City of London is going to be working with a Black liaison officer and uh, someone from the Indigenous community as well, um, which will help inform um, decisions that are being made at the at a higher managerial level at the City of London. There's also the anti-racism um, and anti-oppression lens implemented on all service areas at the City of London, uh, including our budget. Uh, again, I'm very big on the budget because uh, where we allocate money really defines who we are as a people. What we spend our money on uh, shows where our heart is. And so if we uh, implement an anti-racist um, lens on our budget, it's going to inform whether we're going to spend more money uh, in, in areas that we haven't spent money in um, and how those areas affect uh, people of color uh, and Indigenous people and, and, and Black people as well. So that's an initiative that I, um, one, participated in, so I'm fully aware of it, uh, and two, uh, continue to follow very closely. And yeah, Another initiative that I could think of is literally the Black Lives Matter movement in London uh, and the connection that has been made between the Indigenous community and different uh, Black um, organizations here in London uh, and the work that they're doing to continue to to speak their truth and empower um, and also hold people accountable for the atrocities that happen to Black and Indigenous people in this country uh, and especially in this city. Um, I think that's uh, an initiative that is commendable. Um, I also know that there's been advocacy, this is not in the city of London, but at the provincial level uh, for black education, uh, black history to be um, implemented into our education system, along with the indigenous um, education uh, uh, curriculum that was removed by the provincial government to be reinstated. So those are really important things because if people don't know uh, something you don't know, you just don't know it, right? Like I remember when I was um, growing up in this um, country, I wasn't aware of of anything or any history of the indigenous people until I was in university. And the reason why I learned it is because someone vaguely mentioned it in a, in a class in, in one of my courses that I was taking in, uh, in a, um, I was taking a minor in Canadian studies and, and it was vaguely mentioned. It was not 
explicitly taught. It was vaguely mentioned. And I actually ended up dropping that minor and taking on the Indigenous um, Indigenous Studies minor to learn more. And even then, the history was not really well thought uh, taught in the classes. And I had to actually go out into the communities and, and volunteer and work with them to try and, and, and understand uh and that was my will. If I didn't choose to do that, I would not have learned. I would have just went along with the stereotypes and the biases that we have as a country about Indigenous people. So education is important and 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 budgeting is also important. So those two things are really important. And I'm seeing a lot of advocacy around it and a lot of work from uh, Black and Indigenous communities with the support of a lot of people of color communities as well. So that that's a, that's a commendable initiative. And I think that's a, a game changer in my opinion. You know, I'm sure other people would have different opinions of what is a game changer. But for me, um, starting something at the grass um, roots is really important. And also making sure that we have the financial backing is also important. So, yeah. And I loved how you said the budget is reflective of the heart. And yes. you're so right, right? Um, and, and I am paying attention to what the city is doing. And I was really impressed that they are making that commitment in hiring a director uh, community liaison position for Black and Indigenous people. So, you know, in these are small steps, but mm-hmm. they're going in the right direction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so as white Londoners, and I'm a white person myself, what can we do better to be better allies and advocates for racial equality? Like, we we do. Like, the ones that are leaning in, you know, what can we do? Yeah, so I'm going to continue to speak on the political um understanding or a level just because that is my <laughs> my niche <laughs> um a vote for people who understand a vote for people who are going to make the right decisions for for people who are going to allocate m- money where the money is needed um and not allocate money where their friends need it most understand um and again i go back to education as well educate yourself understand uh and 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 support people who are doing the work. Um, and again, I go back to this political conversation just because that's what I understand most. And that's what I've, I guess, grasped and, and, and I run with because I do understand that change has to happen at a policy level. Change has to happen where uh, policies are being discussed and money is being um you know, discussed as well. Like I, I just mentioned to you, where we spend our money shows where our hearts um, are, and 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 so we need people. We need more women, and we need more women of color, and we need more Black and Indigenous women in these spaces because their experience uh, is going to help affect that change, and not only just for those specific communities, but for the entire country altogether. If we look at the way. The, the gaps that the pandemic has exposed in our in our cities in our country, um, there are gaps of lack of housing, lack of of mental health um, facilities that support people, or even um, assisted living. And we look at the opioid crisis and and so many issues that at the core of it is is lack of support and lack of funding. Um, why are we electing people who are not going to focus on those issues? Um, the long-term care facilities right now that we're seeing, uh, the atrocities that are happening there, This there was early um, 
warning signs that this was going to happen. We are an aging population. So why do we elect people who are not going to appropriately fund that? If you look at the housing crisis in this country, uh, whether it be from the social housing to the housing market, the renting market, um, everything that's happening, we could have saw that coming, but we continue to elect people who are not going to make that change. Um, as someone who grew up in housing, it's important to have uh, my voice represented, not just my voice, but many people's voices represented at that table because I know what it's like to live in housing. Um, but yet we have policies at certain levels that prevent people who have lived in housing or who live in housing to participate in decisions that concern them. Why are people making decisions for people who they cannot speak for? And even in, in city building, like you talk about urban planning and you think about the different conversations, like, I don't know if you remember, the 2018 election was heavily influenced by transit. And many people who are making those decisions do not take transit. That's a problem. So true. Oh, I know. So true. Yep. That's a problem. So we have to rethink about what we've considered to be normal. Um, fun fact or a funny thing I've watched online. I don't really understand this, but I think I'm starting to catch out onto it. I'm watching how the, the market or the stock market is crashing down and it's crashing down by um, younger people deciding to, to play the game that rich people have been playing for a long time, but they're playing in the right way. So from what I understood is that there are companies that can be uh, brought down by more powerful people. And so these young people are actually deciding like, no, you're not going to bring that company down. We're actually going to rebuild that, that company so you can't bring it down. And then their bets are lost. So I don't know. It's It's a very it's a phenomenon that I don't fully understand, but it just shows that we can actually switch the structure in of the th the ways that we've believed that things have to work. It's it's like someone drew the lines and said, "You can't play outside of these lines," but I can, right? Just the same way that the government will tell us that everybody has to stay home, nobody can leave the country, nobody can do this, but then their ministers are traveling it, it just shows that there is no respect of the work that they, they they're doing and it's 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 now more than ever it's more imperative for us to vote for people who care about the community who um at the heart of of what they do they have a shared responsibility to their communities um and and that is often found in women and that is often found in communities of color so um and, and I'm loving that I'm seeing a lot of people being empowered to want to run and to want to be part of those po uh, policy tables. So, yeah, I think politics in the past was something that people did as a, as a pivot, <laughs> you know, as something that I, I, I want to pivot or I want to go in and protect my personal interests and my business. Uh, uh, and now people are seeing it more as a uh, what what it really is and what it was really meant for. Uh, the government was meant to create policies that protect the communities. Um, and that's not what it's done in the past. And people are starting to step up and say, this is what we can do. And here's how we can participate. So I, I, and I'm sorry, I keep speaking on a political level, but that's that's the level that I'm in. And that's the, the playing field. And, and what I understand is that you don't have to do politics how it's been done before. You can actually bring in your community with you into these policy uh, making or decision making tables and make the right decisions that reflect the community. 
No, don't be sorry, because that is the gift that you bring to the table. Like you said, you've lived in uh, you know public housing or whatever, and you can understand from the other side what it's like. So you can bring that perspective. And you're right. Oftentimes, our political leaders don't have that inside perspective. So how do they how do they know what are the realities? And um, and I loved what you raised about our politicians are telling us to stay home. And yet a lot of these leaders uh, didn't stay home during the pandemic and went away over the holidays. And it just reeked of elitism and entitlement. And it's just wrong. So you're right. Um, there's this shift that's happening. And I'm glad to see that, um, that people aren't tolerating this stuff. And um, yeah, and that is the way to shape policy going forward. You're absolutely right. So no, uh, please. Challenging these systems yeah. and, and mm-hmm. like challenging why we believe what we believe, why we have done things the way we have done them, why we live in a system that only a small percentage of people get to vote in the election and, and why are we not voting in mass numbers? Why are we disconnected to basically the tables that decide the course of our lives? Yeah, and for yeah. some people, that's not the case. You know, for some people, yeah. the government doesn't impact them as much as other people. But for a lot of us, that is, and for a lot of Canadians, and COVID has shown that. COVID has mm-hmm. shown that a lot of people are in precarious situations right now. And and it's not just Black and Indigenous people or people of color. It's a lot of white people as well who are experiencing this precarious life. Uh, it's a lot of students. It's a lot of young people who will not be able to purchase homes, who are unable to rent because of the policies that the provincial government has created. So how do we change that? Only we can change mm-hmm. that. Absolutely. No, thanks for raising that for sure. So the theme for this year's Black History Month is celebrating the strength and resilience of the Black community in southwestern Ontario. Uh Uh, Do you have any stories that demonstrate this amazing resilience? Yeah. um, I mean, for one, uh, the Black community in in London has been present uh, as early as the 1800s um and there's a lot of beautiful stories that have not been told um and uh i was uh i was thinking about the slave chapel that that was uh given to to the uh bme church um right. and i've visited before i'm not sure if you you know about it or have been, of course have been we do it. okay yeah. good yeah we've had a lot of uh, fund holders support that initiative too so i'm very aware of it yeah so i remember visiting that place and and just walking in and um it was it was a strong <laughs> there was a strong feeling in there and i I, I didn't stay there. Too, I didn't stay inside too long because I just felt like this. There's a lot of energy here, um, and it just made me think about what they they went through to to get here. What the they had to cross to to get here, and um, to think about in this decade talking about their stories and sharing their stories and actually uncovering the real stories of what happened. Um, even Harriet Tubman, there was a movie that was recently produced of, of her story. And it was so beautiful that her story was actually told for what it really was. Cause I remember growing up in school, we knew that she was a woman who helped other slaves. That was it. She, she was a slave and she ran away and she helped a few people, but, 
she's more than that. This is a woman who was who was guided spiritually to free a thousand slaves. Um, this is a woman who, a small woman, who delivered a thousand people, a thousand people, and there was a forty thousand um, uh, dollar warrant on her. You know, because they were looking for her and they couldn't find her. And not only that, she also helped uh, inform. Uh, strategies with the army when they were trying to free uh, more black people. So her story is so rich and so huge, and and it just shows the resilience of of, of black people. And also just adding into the immigrant story as well. Think about the many women and the many men who have come from different parts of the world to come and immigrate here, um, and their stories are not often told. But as we know, that this system is not. It still has a long way to go, and yet they have been resilient enough to still be here and 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 to have children. If you look at the the healthcare system right now and our doctors and and different frontline workers that we've had in this pandemic, um, who are black or people of color uh, and their resilient stories. And you look at the indigenous communities who are now um, their stories are being shared um, and you, you learn about who they are and the resilience and, and there's so much breaking of who they were, but they're still strong and they're still resilient. I think um, that grounds us as, as, as a people. Um, even when we look at the, the Black Lives Matter movement that happened last year, uh, it was so brutal, um, if I can say. It was really brutal at that time to watch what was happening, um, uh, not just the protests, not the rioting, not just everything that was happening was very, very, very tough on everyone, especially on top of a pandemic, on top of being in the middle of a pandemic. So we were experiencing like double or triple the crisis and, and the, the, the impact of the crisis. And a lot of us are still here in 2021. That's a lot of resiliency. And I think that comes from our, from our ancestors. Um, so I, 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 I think thinking about the, the slaves travel and the first black people who came and, and were, went through that building and then thinking about where we're at today, where we are implementing anti-racism at the city of London. We're celebrating Black History Month. We are telling our stories openly. Uh, there's a show on Rogers TV, which is called The Melanated View, and it's uh, five black women who are sharing their stories. You know, um, all of those things um, remind me that regardless of how the system tries to break us, we're still standing. And I think I share that those stories with my son as well. When he feels a little desperate, uh, I just remind him that many of us have gone through so much and we're still standing. And I remind him that I was born in a country that was torn by war and I'm still here and we're still standing and, and, and that is with the support of our ancestors and that is beautiful. I, I agree with you 100% and good for you for pushing that conversation too with your son who's young and his life experiences are very much different from yours, right? But you're still showing him, look, you know, how we can draw on these past experiences and our own inner strength. Um, I think that's smart. And actually for young people, that is what they need, right? Is to practice resiliency for sure. So good for you. I think it was in 2019, 2019 where the, the federal government announced um, in their budget 
that there was a part of their budget that spoke specifically about um, African descent uh, Canadians receiving allocations. Was it enough? That's a whole other conversation. Could they have done more? That's a whole other conversation. But just seeing, <laughs> you know, that name, like Black communities, African descent uh, communities in, in a budget, that was the first time that's ever happened in this in the history of this country, right? And then you think about, you know, what's happening today. The the a lot of uh, uh, racist organizations uh, being labeled as terrorism, um, speaking about anti-black racism. Like I, I I I speak about it because that I've always talked about anti-black racism. But every single time I go into a organization or I'm invited into a high profile event and someone mentions anti-black racism, I'm startled to this day, but it just shows that our strength and our resilience continues to, to make room for us. Um, I wish the system was kinder on us and we didn't have to go through all of this, but um, it, we are still resilient either way. That's, that's awesome. Um, now hearing everything that you're saying, like I'm so fired up, like who, who are the black leaders that inspired you or motivated you while you were growing up? <laughs> there are a lot of black women uh, who are not, you know, publicly known that have touched my life, that have inspired me, that have encouraged me to continue to be, you know, the person that I am today, who actually are part of the makeup of who I am. Um, my mom included, you know, my mom is a strong black woman who um, is resilient, who's gone through so much and she always has a smile on her face and she's pushed through so much. So um, she does inspire a lot of the, the, the person that I am. Uh, but in terms of my political uh, life, um, I, 2008, I was in my first year university and Obama got elected. I was pregnant actually that year, but, and I wasn't thinking I was going to be in politics at that time. I just thought that, that is beautiful. If that can happen, then anything can happen. And I'm pretty sure that Obama bred a lot of young politicians, a lot of young Black politicians. And um, so I do kind of identify myself with that era of, of people who felt that they can do anything and they are allowed, you know, the word allowed to do anything they are allowed to participate in the same systems that other people are participating in um so that was an that was my first the first impact um as a woman in of black women in politics uh i've always wanted to find that one person that i feel like i can relate to and i can uh in embody their their i don't know i feel inspired by by them and my entire life, I've always been inspired by Martin Luther King. And I know that there's a lot of controversy around Martin Luther King, but uh, Martin Luther King to me uh, is is someone that has inspired me my entire life, you know, for not because of the, I have a dream, not because of, uh, you know, the, the work that he did, but I just felt a very strong connection to him uh, because he was also a very spiritual man. And, um, because he was a man who, when he made an error, he recognized that error. And even the last few uh, years of his life, um, he talked about, he, he highlighted the errors that he 
felt that he had he had made and he he wanted to see black people succeed he wanted to see a world of of he wanted to be in a world where we were not pointed out uh, as a people just because we're black he wanted to he wanted equity for for people and but he also recognized that he was fighting and asking for in a system that was probably going to to reject that and 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 and, and even if if it opened it was going to be harmful for the black communities and i think if we would have stayed a lot uh, around a lot longer we would have seen a lot of policy changes um but we didn't get that chance because he was robbed um of his of his life but uh so he's someone that i I've always felt very spiritually connected to. Um, don't ask me why, but uh, he, I have been very, very impacted by him. And in the recent years, uh, Harriet Tubman is someone that I have felt a strong connection to. And I also can't explain that because uh, I remember been in high school and every single time her name was brought up, I would walk out of a room because I was like, oh, here we go again. They're going to talk about her being a slave and I'm going to spend a whole day at school and everybody's going to look like, look at me thinking I'm a slave and I'm not a slave. Like it was just, a, it was, um, it was a very tough situation to be in because there's no positive black stories being told. It was always about slavery and, and and not even the true story about slavery. There was never discussions of our resilience. There was never discussions of our of our resistance. There was never discussions about about how we fought back and, and how we, we tried. It was just all about we accepted slavery and we're slaves. Um so and, and and I'm saying this, not saying like people were actually saying those exact words. It just felt that way. That was the perception I had as a kid. But eventually I grew to love and to 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 understand Harriet Tubman on a stronger level. And I for a long time I didn't know why I, I developed this very strong bond towards her until I read and did a lot more research into her her story and and understanding that she was also a spiritual woman and she was also a woman who was on a mission to liberate uh black people and and the work that she was doing so i i connect to that i connect to that um those are two people who strongly um influence me as a person and and i i feel yeah i feel connected to them in a way no i think that's great of course it makes total sense and um how do you feel about kamala harris being the first uh vice president woman of color um, being elected, I, I think that's also going to yeah. inspire a lot of young women, Absolutely. right? And Absolutely. people of color to push through, right? And just like when you said that moment with Barack Obama, that makes total sense because it it demonstrated to you, I can be, I can do that too. And here you were at, in university and carrying your your pregnant. firstborn, <laughs> pregnant, like yeah. that's resiliency right there <laughs> and yeah. grit for yeah. you no Kamala uh, Harris is definitely going to impact um a lot of not just you know black and young South Asian girls but also a lot of girls all together like she is the first woman no. um occupying the second highest seat in, in in office in the United States like that's a huge deal um I think I already saw the movement. I saw the movement. I saw the movement from across the across the board, from 
different women, you know, who are stepping up, who are volunteering, who are donating, who are working campaigns, right? So I think um, that's, that's, that's a, she's definitely a historical um, uh, person and she's, she's definitely changing um, a lot of trajectories for a lot of young girls, right? So she's opening the door. She's, if you call it a glass ceiling moment, or I call it, uh, uh, um, for Black women, I always call it a, a uh, concrete ceiling. And you have Love to it. take your hammer and chip at it. And then as you continue to chip, and someone else is going to come in and chip more, right? Because we don't have glasses. The glass is very easy to break. We don't have it easy to break, right? She's probably going to experience a very tough um, term. Um, I, 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 I'm looking forward to seeing what she's going to do. I personally do not necessarily align with her policies. Um, I don't align with her policies. Her policies are more right leaning than mine. Um, but I, I'm amazed at what she's done and I respect what she's done and I honor what she's done because once that chipping starts, then other people are definitely going to be able to continue to come in and chip it and, and bring in different policies as well. So I, I was excited to watch that. It was, uh, it was a historical moment that we needed in a desperate moment <laughs> we needed that sure. and it was For also sure. surprising to realize that oh my goodness we are in 2020 and we had not seen a woman be it's not surprising to me when we're celebrating black women um trailblazing it's never a surprise because of the nature of the system but i was surprised that it was the first woman who was in the second highest office in the united states for sure. And uh, are you going to be watching the Super Bowl? You're probably wondering why I'm asking you this, but <laughs> <laughs> did not. You, probably not. But uh, did you know that Amanda Gorman, the uh, the young 22 year old oh, black perform- girl, she is going to be at the opening for the Super Bowl. So I, I that thrilled me, too, <laughs> because when I heard, saw her speak at the inauguration, I was just wow. <laughs> yeah, and that was so, also a, like a history making moment because she was the youngest person to ever be invited to <laughs> to speak. And oh, boy, did she speak, you know, and yeah. she left a very strong impression. And I think she's one to watch over the course of the years of the amazing. And I know, you know, she was performing a poem, but there was a lot of policies that could have been born out of her speech and there it was a preaching it was it was a warning it was it was uh, an uplifting message it was a poem it was it was so many things in one <laughs> that it could take a year to just dissect oh i agree and just to know that she changed her speech after january 6 watching the uh what it was happening on the Capitol. So, um, oh, she's brilliant. So I'm also super excited to see her at the Super Bowl opening. So well, that's why I will join you and watch that part. <laughs> I think you should. I'm not a huge football fan. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was at some point in my life and I, I don't know, I, nowadays watching TV is not, it's not the easiest thing for me to do. <laughs> I understand. No. Um, and finally, what do you think London can be and how can we get there together? I think London can be what it wants to be. I think London has the has a lot of great things happening for it. I think one of the missing key in London has been the 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 um, 
lack of participation from the mass population in London. We have about 500,000 people and I'm just, you know, rounding up right now. Um, and we don't get that. We don't have a lot of people participating in a lot of things that we do in London. We don't get a lot of people um asking questions, even being involved, but that has changed the last two years. And I've seen a lot more Londoners pay attention. Uh, I've seen a lot more Londoners, you know, lending their hands and, and, and work together and support, uh, whether they're supporting frontline workers, whether they're supporting, you know, um, protesters, whether they're asking for be better policies, whether they're, you know, caring about the environment. Um, we've seen like we've we've had a lot of tragedies in London uh, recently. The the fire that happened uh, with the accident in Old East, um, there was a lot of Londoners that came together. The protest for the environment, a lot of Londoners came together. The Black Lives Matter protest, a lot of Londoners came together. And then the pandemic, like we've connected and we um, seen the importance of staying connected. So we're now going to start amplifying the great assets that we have in London and but one of the biggest assets that we have in this community is the ability to come together as one and and build our city but it's going to take everybody and everybody has to like I told you earlier I come from a community where we all have shared responsibilities of taking care of one another um, there's this um, saying that in my language is Ubuntu, which means Ubuntu means I am because you are, you know, and you are because I am. So uh, if we're able to embody that concept of the way that we share our spaces and the way that we share our communities um, is really going to change um London. I know a lot of people have been looking for ways to brand London and to find uh, an identity. And London is constantly going through a revamping or a renaming or re I don't know. But people are trying to find how to what kind of identity they can give to London. I I, I have stayed away from that because I don't think if they didn't sort they didn't figure it out I don't think I'm going to figure it out but what I know and I've seen and the potential that I've seen in London is the 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 connection that we build and and the power that happens when we're connected and I think we can leverage that and we have to push on that and we have to create that space too for people to be connected uh and I think our shared um, pains in the last couple of years are bringing us together and are pushing us to connect uh, and and we can start building around the idea of of existing um, uh, as a shared community and as a shared collective I hope so you know and I I share in that sentiment that I think this pandemic has raised um, our sensitivities toward connection, because it's a lack of connection that we have right now. And I think it's through these movements, right, that are really shining a light on the importance of being connected, being a stronger community. Look at the way we've had to reorganize ourselves. That is making us more connected, right, in a in a soft, gentle way. And I hope we continue to push through that. Absolutely. Uh, and Ariel, I have to say, you are so easy to talk to. Like, I could talk to you for hours. Thank you so much uh, for your time, um, for sharing your insights, your story, uh, your thoughts uh, with us today. Uh, I certainly learned so much from you, and I'm positive that our listeners will do too. And um, 
Thank you. And I wish you all the best during these trying times, you, your family, and your work uh, representing our city and your community. Um, thank you so much for your tireless efforts. And thank your you time so today. much for having me. This has been a very light and fun conversation. Good. And um, I am thankful that you uh, were able to invite me on here. And um, I just want to wish everyone who is listening to us a safe, um, safe rest of the year uh, to continue to distance, to continue to stay home and save lives, to continue to advocate for um, basic rights for our neighbors and um, to continue to care and, and protect one another. And we will get through this and we'll get through this together. We will. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, bye for now, but for sure, we're going to stay in touch. Okay. Take care. Okay. You too. Thank you for joining us for this episode of What London Can Be. Look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn how to subscribe to this podcast and for more information about today's guest, visit us at lcf.on.ca slash whatlondoncanbe. If you like this podcast, tell a friend and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find links on our website. Thank you again for joining us.